Welcome to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will feature the center's equity fellows, national scholars from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. Each episode will focus on a topic relevant to ensuring equitable access and participation in quality education for historically marginalized students, specifically in the areas of race, sex, national origin and religion, and at the intersection of socioeconomic status. Two, one. Daniela Ann Cook is an associate professor in the Department of Instruction and Teacher Education at the University of South Carolina. Originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, she received her master's and doctoral degrees from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Prior to joining the faculty at University of South Carolina Columbia, Dr. Cook served as an assistant professor of education at the University of Tulsa and the postdoctoral research fellow with the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality in the Social Sciences Research Institute at Duke University. Her research and scholarship address three intersecting themes, historical and contemporary narratives of Black educators, public policy with a focus on community engagement, and identifying factors that support students' access to rigorous curricula across diverse schooling contexts. These three areas reflect her commitment to the democratic project of sustaining racially just and equitable schooling for communities traditionally underserved by public education. She conducted an ethnographic study of black educators in New Orleans post-Katrina to explore urban school reform narrative with an explicit focus on their effects on black communities during the largest displacement of African-American educators since desegregation. Dr. Cook is also an associate editor for the Urban Review. She is also actively involved in several professional organizations, including the American Educational Studies Association and the American Educational Research Association. In addition to presenting at international and national conferences, Dr. Cook has published in a wide range of journals, including Multicultural Perspectives, the High School Journal, the Journal of Cultural Mathematics, Southern Anthropologists, Voices in Urban Education, and the International Journal of Qualitative Studies in Education. Dr. Cook, thank you for taking time to talk to us today um, about community engagement and urban education reform. Glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You are very welcome. So in your work, you focus on community engagement and community organizing. How do you see the relationship between those two? So when we think about community engagement, we often think about how do we um, create opportunities for communities to give input, right? So we ask folks, what do you think about this? Tell me what you want. But we really don't think about then moving this input into action. And that's where community organizing comes into play. So community organizing traditionally as an organizer, you're trained to ask three questions. You know, what do you want? What power do you have? And what are you willing to do? And so those questions frame action around the things that we're often asking folks to give input on. It also makes you think about when you're shifting from a discussion of community engagement to organizing, you have to really pay attention to power 
in particular ways and think about who's at decision-making tables and whose voices do we really acknowledge and listen to. Okay, so broadly speaking, how do you see those relating to urban education reform? So often when we think of reform, there are a couple of things I think we need to debunk before I get to that. Um, reform is not necessarily positive and it's not neutral. So oftentimes we take reform as change is good and that we're gonna move us closer to a positive goal. And I think that when we realize that we can have reforms that are negative in the case of high stakes testing, um, or reforms that have um, impacts that undermine our sense of equity and justice and the goals that we, we say we're um, advancing in our work and in our schools and our communities, um, reform is not necessarily uh, good for us or good to us. So then when we think about urban education reform, oftentimes we're looking at what urban contexts don't do, what's wrong with black and brown people and black and brown communities, instead of really looking at what are the assets in these communities? What debts do we owe to these communities because of our public policies and practices that have marginalized them in particular ways and therefore have these deleterious impacts um, on schools and their communities, um, in health outcomes, in a broad range of factors. So then if you think about urban school, um, urban education reform, and you think about community engagement, and then you think about community organizing, and you mix that all up together, what I like to think about is if our goal is to have more equitable and racially just school reforms in urban context, then we need to think about how to have transformative relationships with communities, and, the, and that speaks to how we engage with communities. Um, and then how do we connect that engagement to moving the needle in our public policies, right? And that's where the organizing comes into play because it's then asking us to think about what are we willing to do to have the types of schools that we want to have. And in your mind, what, what's your vision? What is, when you talk about these equitable and racially just educational experiences, can you talk a little, little bit more about your visioning around that? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that for me, it means that when kids are coming to our schools, right, your zip code is not going to determine the type of curricula you're exposed to. Your zip code won't um, determine the qualifications of your teachers, your um, zip code, your race, um, your family's net worth will not impact um, your experience in school, that every kid is coming um, to school um, in a way that they're seen as full of having potential, that they're valuable, um, that they're valued, um, their families are valuable, their families are valued, and that we're operating as such from every level at every level. I also think that um, for me, a racially just and equitable schooling environment is preparing our kids to participate in our democratic society, right? And not just democracy here in the States, but see themselves as global um, participants in democracy and really critically thinking about how can they, how can we help them shape the world in which they're living, right? So what are we doing in our schools, right? To give them opportunities to have healthy conflict resolution. How are we helping them think about um, how our policies and practices that are human driven, right? These weren't things that just came out of the sky, but people made decisions in all these areas. How can we help our kids think about how they can positively and equitably impact um, the lives of other people and their own lives by seeing the relationships 
between different factors. So for me, that's what that vision would look like. All right. Well, thank you for that. So in, in thinking about this equitable more race address, a lot of districts across the country are moving towards charters as a means mm -hmm. to provide more equitable opportunities. Um, can you share your perspective on this shift? Yeah, so I think that we have to be really careful when we say charters to ask folks what they're defining as charters. So the history of charters actually emerged out of um, the teachers union. And most folks don't know that, that um, teachers unions wanted to think about, we need to have a lab for trying out those strategies that can help teachers reach all kids at high levels. Right, and what are those types of learning contexts and environments that will contribute to that? And so then once we figure that out in a small setting, then we can think about how do we bring that up to scale, right? The history of charters has been lost um, partially because of the privatized nature of contemporary charter schools, right? So we have charter organizations that see charters as an means of economic growth it's a new it's the new economic engine right and what's fueling that engine are typically black and brown kids who are not being served and folks are being drawn to these models because they see that their schools aren't working and they don't have a way to think about how they can help transform their neighborhood schools and their community schools and they see charters as one way to do that so i think that it's really important for us to kind of tease out um, which type of charter are we talking about? Are we talking about these corporate models that it's a one size fits all, that they sugarcoat and sugar pick which kids they're going to choose. They really don't have an interest in long-term sustainability in a community um, because they're looking at the, their, their bottom line is, you know, are their test scores improving enough so they can continue to then get public dollars for their private venture, right? those types of charters must be distinguished between those that are community-based charters, right? Where schools are coming out of community desire and dream and, and decision, and then communities are then shaping curricula, growing their teachers, and they see schools as a part of a larger ecosystem in their community, not just a school. And so teasing those things out, I think, are really, really important when we talk about charters. And if we don't do that, we're going to then um, support the continual undermining of public education, which I'm a staunch advocate for. I think that public education is really crucial to our democracy. And if we stop supporting public education where all kids have access to high quality teachers, rich curricula, um, out of school learning, um, experiences connected to their schools, having access to the arts, we're actually going to undermine not only our democracy, but we're actually going to undermine the dreams of enslaved Africans who the first thing that they did upon being free and fighting for their freedom was to establish schools. So I know you talked about, you know, distinguishing between the differences of the charter schools, whether it's the corporate, mm -hmm. whether it's community-based, and also at the same time, you're saying, I am an advocate of public education. In a recent conversation, you were talking with me about the work of Carol Lee and her school in um, Chicago. I think mm -hmm. it would be great for the audience for you to talk a little bit about her work in that particular charter school. Yeah, so I, I'm going to veer and I'm going to hopefully encourage your, your listeners to go look up Carol Lee's charter school in um, Chicago and also there are similar models happening in Detroit and other areas around the country 
one of the contributions of Dr. Lee's work is a really um, rich discussion of the role of community in schooling and how we often, um, <laughs> often speaks around um, not conflating schooling with education. And I think that when you look at uh, the work of Dr. Lee and her charter school and others around the country, they're really careful about not uh, making those things similar, right? So we understand schooling as socialization, right? We're going to help you learn certain skills so you can participate in dominant mainstream society, whereas education is really rooted in not only learning those skills that help you negotiate and navigate successfully mainstream society, but education is about critiquing and pushing the mainstream and the dominant to be more, in my words, democratic, just, and equitable, right? And so I think that when we think about um, those community-based charters, those charters that seek to not strip kids' identities, mm -hmm but to embrace their kids' identities as central aspects of their learning, those types of charters are grounded um, in not competing with public education, but fulfilling the ultimate goals of public education. So one, um, two more things and to reach one of our goals. I want you to just talk a little bit about what can parents, caregivers do uh, larger community organizations do mm -hmm. to support this vision of equitable and racially just mm -hmm. opportunities for kids. And also, I know in your work, you talk about in that, that it be a rigorous experience as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful question. And I think that I really love the framing around thinking about caregivers. There is a concept that I employ in my work called fictive kinship. Mm -hmm. And what that refers to are what are the larger relationships that we have that are not driven by blood kin? Right. And so many of us, we have our aunties and uncles who are nowhere related to us by marriage or otherwise. But those folks sew into us, they take care of us, um, they scold us, they sharpen us. And so, for my vision of how we think about bringing um, the full weight of our communities to bear on the challenges um, in our schools, but also then creating those opportunities to address those challenges, is we have to think how do we bring parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, that fictive kin um, into relationship with those of us who are working inside school buildings? And so that would mean how can we build trusting relationships um, with those folks? That means you need to know people and knowing them doesn't mean you judge those relationships, right? You see that having people who you're related to um, that may or may not be your parent um, that's an asset. And most of us would love to have that many people sewing into us and loving on us and scolding us and sharpening us. So how do we then think about bringing those folks in? And there are lots of ways to do that. We can alter the relationship. So instead of always asking um, the larger community to come to us, we go to them, right? What are those community spaces where people already gravitate to? Right. And moving beyond just churches and barbershops, because I think we're at the point where now we're like over um, <laughs> indulging in, in those spaces. But you have to really kind of think about in each community, there are always those homes. There are always those sites where people just gather. And how do we kind of um, take that, take those gathering spaces, become a part of those gathering spaces, not try to appropriate or mm -hmm. take over, but become a part of 
so that we can then kind of have more meaningful links, right, between school, community, community, and school, and bring the larger network of caregivers to wrap around our kids. And so once you, so you're, so, so you're saying you're going to these community spaces, having mm-hmm. a larger network, you know, I like you talking about getting out of just the, the church and the barbershops are yeah. resourceful spaces exactly. to be in, but going yes. beyond that. Yes. When, once you're in those spaces, what are you saying to the communities, to the parents, to the caregivers to say, mm-hmm. here are some mm-hmm. things you might want to consider, some things you might want to do to help impact what's going on uh, with the teaching and learning of your children, mm-hmm. and the children so, in your community. So actually the first thing I do is listen. So I actually asked them the question, you know, what do you care most about? Um, I ask folks questions around, what are your memories about schools? Tell me about, you know, what was school like for you? And we j- use that as a jump off to then start to talk about, well, how can they become more effective advocates um, for their kids. And I think that the first thing we do, we should do is find out what folks' concerns are and really listen. And then that'll open up a door of opportunity for us to then provide um, some insight that they may not have known. So for example, um, when I was living in North Carolina, organizing around um, anti-high stakes testing, and I would go around to different communities around the state, one of the things that struck me was that parents saw um, holding kids back as a positive thing. And they didn't, they weren't trying to hurt their kids. They really thought that, look, you know, Daniela needs some help with her math. And so, you know, she needs to, you know, take another year to kind of master this. What they didn't know is when you hold a kid back, you increase their chances of dropping out by 50%. You do it twice, it's a 90% chance, right? You're increasing their likelihood of dropping out. So that opened up a door for me to go, wait a minute, folks don't know this, so I should drop that knowledge. But then also, um, it made me attuned to oftentimes people are doing things that are detrimental for, for good reason, and then they don't have another way to think about, you know, how do we then address the gap? And so we kind of collectively thought about what does it look like for kids to just get additional support in the subject areas in which they need it and not hold them back for everything, right? Or move them forward with additional support versus just, you know, holding them back around everything. So I think for parents, it's really important um, to be okay asking questions and stating what it is that you need, knowing that someone may come and offer something that you weren't expecting, but hopefully the person that you're sharing it with is listening with the ear of, I know you care about your kid. And that's always been kind of my starting point is, I know you care about your kid, not just your kid, but the kids in our communities. And so when, I, when I'm listening for that, then I can offer different suggestions, right? So asking questions, okay. I think for parents, it's really important for them to um, read and not just, um, you know, read randomly, but I'm thinking Rethinking Schools offers lots of really accessible yes. um, articles. Another kind of North Carolina story, we started out Friday night potlucks across three school mm-hmm. districts of teachers, parents, there were some professors in a group, And people had their kids, whoever you were dating at the time, may not have been there two months later, but they were at that one. And, you know, you would show up and we would pick something to read and we would just talk about it. So what would it look like in our um, informal 
gathering spaces to actually talk about some things that matter to us, but then go the extra step and invite people to read something with you. It doesn't mean you're going to have all the answers, mm -hmm. but it can help spark a dialogue. And so I think that continuing to um, learn is something that parents can do. And then the other thing um, I would encourage parents to do is don't be afraid to reach out to experts. So I'm thinking about the case of a group of parents um, in a affluent suburban district to so middle class, highly affluent middle class black parents. And they were struggling with their kids were being disproportionately placed in special education. So these folks were having an urban experience in a suburban context. And what they did, they came across a book by Teresa Perry, Young, Gifted, and Black. I highly recommend it. And it's in Barnes and Noble. And they read the book and they reached out to Dr. Perry. And she reached back out to them and built a relationship with them that then supported their organizing around um, equitable educational opportunities for their kids. So I think that as parents are reaching out and reading different things and coming across different articles, reach out to folks. And many of the scholars that I know, they're happy to talk with parents, to connect with parents, um, connect with community members is not about getting an honoraria or getting a, a line on a resume, but folks who are really invested in doing this work um, want legs on the work. And the only way the legs can be on the work is if parents and community members, you know, read it and not just go, oh, this is great, but feel free to push back hmm. and hold us to the carpet around, wait, how does this, how does this work? So those are just a few things. All right, thank you. And I, you know, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and insights today. So lastly, in a nutshell, can you leave our listener with, listeners with three um, main points to remember from this discussion today, this conversation today? So my shero is Ella Baker. So point one, Ella Baker says, strong people don't need strong leaders. So I think that uh, one point when we think about community organizing is for parents and communities and caregivers to realize their strength and use their strength um, to push for the types of education that we want for all of our kids and never apologize um, for wanting equitable um, learning environments for all of our kids. I think point two is realize that parents, community giver, caregivers, and the larger community um, Y'all have a lot of power. We have a lot of power, not individually, but collectively. Mm -hmm. So if we can learn to think about all kids as our kids, and then really think about what are those levers that we need to see happen um, so that all kids have the types of learning that we have, that's what's going to make any reform that's positive and good for our kids sustainable. Because the one thing that remains are our communities. You know, we vote, we pay taxes, people are accountable to us. So remembering that um, as we're thinking about what is it that we want. And then I think the third thing is just be willing to be flexible and to continue to grow. That as you learn and do work and, and read and fight a battle and win a victory, lose some, you're gonna know things differently. And that's a part of the journey of good, I think, organizing and good community engagement that's transforming schools in ways that are equitable and just, that communities are not afraid um, 
to be flexible and grow. You don't lose who you are. You don't lose your traditions. You don't lose what you believe. But, you know, recognize that there may be different ways that young people are engaging mm -hmm. um, that we may need to hone in on and realize that the youth are the organizers of now that will be the parents and community and caregivers of the future. So we're setting that model. So if um, those who are listening to this want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to connect with you? So the best way to connect with me, you can email me at daniella.cook at sc.edu, or you can Google Daniella Cook, University of South Carolina, Columbia. My information will um, populate. Feel free to send me an email. You can also reach me by mobile. That phone number is area code 803-470-5518. Again, 803-470-5518. I do respond to text messages as well. Just give me 48 to 72 hours if I don't know who you are. And I really appreciate if you tell me, hey, I'm Crystal. I heard you on the podcast. <laughs> and that way I have a gauge for who I'm talking with. All right. Well, thank you again for your time, and I'm sure we will connect again soon. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. This podcast was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to a podcast, Click on the podcast link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center at Indiana University, is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, S004D11002. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Executive Director, Dr. Kathleen King-Torius, Director of Operations, Dr. Sina Skelton, Associate Director of Engagement and Partnerships, Dr. Tiffany Kaiser, and Instructional and Graphic Designer, Dr. Jasur Dagwi, for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.